Hey, let's do this. We are in the book of Exodus today. Um, we are almost done. We have a few weeks left in our series called God Made Known. Um, we've been wanting just to answer the question as best as we can, who is God? What is God like? How does God reveal himself to us? We have to acknowledge, I've said every week, we are very limited in this. But we want to understand as best as we can who God is, because God has made himself known. If God didn't make himself known, we, we couldn't. But God has decided to reveal himself to us, and so often he does this by communicating and showing his attributes, his characteristics. We see this throughout the New and Old Testament of just God making himself known through his qualities, characteristics, his attributes. And this has been a really, for me, it's been a beautiful time to slow down and be, God, who are you? What do you like? Who do we worship? Who do we sing to? Who do we praise? Like, how do, what do we envision when we envision God? What kind of God is he? Maybe you grew up with this vindictive, angry, killjoy God. Uh, maybe you, you see God as his love, and you don't see him as, as just or holy. And maybe we have like an imbalanced view of God. And I think this is such a good time for us to slow down and be, God, who are you? What do you like? How do you reveal yourself to us? And this is truly the most important conversation, how you and I view God. I think if we could restore our view of God, we could restore the church. I mean, how we live out, how we love, how we serve, how we give, how we just do life. I think a lot of brokenness in our lives come from a broken view of God. And so we want to restore that view of God. Uh, David Hawking, one pastor, says, the root of our problem is a misunderstanding or a misapplication of who God is and what he can do. This is so true. Either a misunderstanding or a misapplication of who God is and what he can do. Again, I think the main issue in life is not just maybe an academic issue, a poverty issue. I think it's a theology issue. I think we need to have a better understanding of who God is and what he's like and watch those other areas of life grow. Watch those other areas of life just, just develop more. So we want to have a better understanding of who God is and what he is like. Amen? Now, I want to be really clear. My fear in doing this is that we just gain a lot of information about God, but we still don't know God. It's very easy to study God like a textbook and love theology or systematic theology, love going deep, loving breaking down some of these characteristics and qualities, but still miss out on God himself. And so that is my concern for myself, for you guys. It's just that we don't, I don't want to have this like growth in knowledge, but yet a lack of love, a lack of grace. We're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And my hope is that we grow in the knowledge of Jesus, yes, but in the process, this is in the grace of Jesus that we would not just know about God, but that we would know him. Yes? Amen? So if you're just joining us, here's kind of where we, what we've been doing and where we're going. So um, we looked at first week, and we'll put them up here, God is. This was like the classic arguments for the existence of God. If you struggle with this idea of God and how do you even know there's a God, go back to week one. I'd say this might be incredibly helpful, hopefully. Uh, we did God is. Then we looked at God is holy. God is joy. God is just. God is love. God is transcendent. God is faithful. Last week, we talked about how God is wise. And today, we're going to keep going, and we're going to look at how God is good. God is good. I'm very excited about this one. And I want to slow down on this. God is good. Now, maybe you have that old school church in you. When I say God is good, what do you say? God is good. And all the time? Dude, isn't that fun? Oh, my gosh. Where is that? God is good. And all the time? Do we believe that? I think we struggle with that. I think that many people I love and care about really struggle with that. They really struggle with how can God be good? He might be all powerful, but can he really be all good? And so we just want to talk about this. I honestly pray that there's, 
again, just this restorative view of God that you're good. You are good. You are a good God. And I want to slow down. And I want to address even some of the problems that maybe come with that. And I just want us to focus and meditate on this. I want us to see that God is good. We're told in Psalm 136, verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. God is good. Just want to slow down, talk about that, meditate on that. I, ho- I hope that this brings us to this place of worship. Like, yes, God, you are good. I know we always feel like we need to kind of exaggerate words, like, like not exaggerate, but almost go, yes, he is perfect. He is that. He is amazing. He is that. But almost this, there's something about the word good. He is just, he is good. So why don't we read uh, a story or an account with Moses interacting with God and God really describing his glory as his goodness. So it's Exodus 33. We're going to read this, kind of prepare for our text today, and then we'll, we'll dissect it some more. Exodus 33. We're going to be in verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses is about to receive the law, the Ten Commandments. And here's what he says. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please, speaking to God, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Really quick, Moses' desire is a beautiful desire. Show me your glory. I mean, he saw uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. He saw the 10 plagues. Has he not seen the glory of God in some capacity? Like, of course he has, but he still goes, I want more. Show me your glory. And God's response still, it just amazes me. He goes, okay, I will let my goodness pass before you. That God says, you want to see my glory? It's my goodness. It's really interesting that God connects his glory to his goodness. That there's something, why God is so glorious, why he is so weighty, why he's so heavy, why he's so beautiful, is because he's good. He's good. My goodness will pass before you. And my hope is that, that you would just sense and see in the Lord's goodness today. So why don't we just bow our heads, close our eyes, ask God to speak and to move, and then we'll walk through some more. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are faithful just to meet with us. Lord, I ask that um, in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, God, where maybe we, we are not believing that fully, that you are good. Maybe we have this mindset that you're indifferent. Lord, that you just remind us of your goodness. God, that your goodness would pass before us. That, Jesus, we would see you for who you are. That we'd see your glory in this way. That as we try to focus on just that you being a good God, that that would transform us. That you'd redefine our our, our view and our definition of good. And that we could just honor you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, I believe from the very beginning, the enemy... When I say the enemy, by the way, I feel like when we talk about the enemy, Satan, Lucifer, the deceiver, the serpent, the dragon, that is just the one that is here to lie, to deceive, I believe that our enemy is genius. That from the very beginning, he's always been trying to question the character and nature of God. I would say specifically, 
he's trying to question the goodness of God. He's basically brought up the question from the very beginning that God, he's not good. If you read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, uh, here's what it says. Genesis 3, verse 4, the conversation between the serpent or the enemy and Eve. He says, the serpent said to the woman, uh, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, the enemy is saying, the day that you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Obviously, God doesn't want you to, to eat this because he's trying to withhold good from you. If God was good, he would let you eat this. He's basically challenging the character, the nature, the quality of God. He's saying, God is afraid of you becoming like him. That's why he said, don't eat this. God is not good. If God was good, he would let you eat this. My thing is, I want us to see that God is good. I think from, still to this moment, to this day, the enemy is really good at questioning the goodness of God. He's really good at making us think, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God is withholding good from me. I think all of us at different times in our life go, God, why won't you let me, or how come you do this? And there's almost this idea that maybe God's not good and he's withholding good from us. And I think the enemy is really good at just pointing out that quality. You know what amazes me? And I know this is not a profound thought, but I was talking about this with my wife the other day. I'm just amazed that there's good at all. I'm amazed that after this moment, after we sinned and rebelled and turned our backs against God, I'm amazed that we can still experience goodness in any form. It's kind of a crazy thought that we actually get to experience things that are good. We're told in James 1:17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good gift comes from above. I'm thankful that things are good. Have you just had like a good cup of coffee? Like a good cup. Like, oh, this is good. Right? It's like, it warms your soul. Like, this is really good. Have you ever had a bad cup? This is bad. Like, I don't want that. Our coffee's good. I'm very thankful for our coffee, right? Um, but do you think about that? Or my wife and I are just joking about like, man, you ever just have a, like, I want, I'm in the mood for a good burger. And when I say the word good burger, I can't not. I'm like 90s kid think of Nickelodeon. Good burger. Sorry. Um, but I just want like a really good burger. For me, that is going back home, and that is the best burger. And you know it. It is In-N-Out Burger. That is a good burger. And for those of you who think it's not a good burger, one day your taste buds will be made alive, and you will taste and see. But there's something about something that's just good. It's amazing that we can experience good things. It truly is amazing that after we rebelled, we sinned, we turned our backs on God. God created everything very good. And we still get to taste things that are good. That just life can have good moments. It's amazing it's not just total chaos, total destruction. That there still is good. We bring up the problem of evil, but I think there's a problem of good that we have to talk about. That's not just a problem for us. It's a problem for those who question if there is even a God. So I want to talk about God being good. I want to look at this. I want to break this down. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, do walk through this and just kind of try to do a biblical overview of the goodness of God. There's three kind of ways we want to look at this. Number one is this, the person, the person. Obviously, what comes next is the problem, the problem. How is there evil, suffering, hell, if God is good? And then there's the promise, all right, the promise that God talks about. So uh, we're going to see the person, God is good, the problem, and the promise. So let's look at the first one, the person, God is good. God is good. We sing this all the time. I think we, we like, might know this, right? We sing, you're a good, good father. Like, you're probably surprised we can play that today. But like, we sing this, like, God, you're good. You're good, you're so good. Like, I don't know, we, we think this, we know this. But do we really believe this? Don't be fun of my singing. But we really, like, do we believe this? I think we might have a misunderstanding of this. I think we maybe don't fully live into it. I think maybe we be, believe it partially. Like, maybe he's good, maybe, I don't know. Kind of good. But God is good. This is just who he is. This is how he's constantly displayed throughout Scripture. I just want to read four verses that kind of paint this picture because there's so much Scripture on this. But just to kind of like stir your hearts towards a place of worship more than anything, uh, listen to this, Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 33. 
uh, sorry, yeah, Psalm 33. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. First Chronicles 16 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endures forever. Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. This is my hope today. My hope today is that you would taste and see that the Lord is good. There is something about me saying God is good. You're like, yeah. But there's something about you tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I can say in and out is good all day long, but you need to taste and see. Like, the point is, we can talk about this in a hypothetical way. But I love the author. I love David. He's inviting you saying, no, no, no. You can taste and see. Like, you need to experience firsthand that the Lord is good. And blessed is the one who trusts in this good God. Taste and see the Lord is good. There's nothing I can really do other than I, I hope that happens. I've been praying for that to happen. God, let our people taste and see that you are good. You need to firsthand experience God as a good God. So bringing it back to our text in Exodus 33, Moses goes, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God goes, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you. I'm going to reveal my name to you. Now here's what's interesting. It's in Exodus 34 this actually happens. So Exodus 33, obviously, right after that is Exodus 34. And you see Moses receive the law, receive the commandments, and you see the name of God and the goodness of God pass before him. And and I just want to read these verses. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. So stay with me. Here's the big picture. Exodus 34. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed. So here's, he's proclaiming his name like he said he would. He's proclaiming his goodness like he said he would. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me just back this up a bit. He said, I want to see your glory. God's like, you will see my goodness and you'll hear my name. It's been said that Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7 summarizes God's goodness. If you're like, God, what does it mean that you're good? He goes, I'm merciful, I'm long-suffering, but I also by no means can clear the guilty that this, this idea of God being good is very holistic. I'm good. I must punish sin so I'm, because I'm good. I must be compassionate and merciful and love and gracious because I'm good. It's a very complete idea of God's goodness. We maybe have like an incomplete or a partial view of God's goodness. He's saying, no, I'm good. I will show love and mercy, covenantal love, but I also by no means am I able to clear the guilty. Obviously, through the blood of Jesus, he is. But he's basically saying the sin must be punished either on yourself or on him. But the idea is God's goodness is very holistic. It's very complete. And it's almost as if how do you summarize the word good or goodness? It's Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. My goodness will pass before you, and then he describes it. I want us to see God as a good God. John Frame, one author, said it this way, kind of about that. He says, what is God's goodness? Is it something in him? It would be more accurate, I think, to say that divine goodness, though it sounds like an abstract property, is really just a way of referring to everything God is. For everything God does is good, and everything he is is good. All his attributes are good. All his decrees are good. All his actions are good. There is nothing in God that is not good. Amen? He said, I want us to see that what he does, what he is, He's just, he is good. All of his attributes, him being just, him being uh, holy, him being merciful, gracious, all of these got to be seen through the lens of his goodness. That they might say, some authors kind of put this, this is the supreme ethical attribute of God, that he is good. And every sort of attribute of God is kind of seen through this idea that he's good. He's a good God. See, this actually brings us to a couple different stories. One in Mark chapter 10. 
You guys might know this, that rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. Remember, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he has everything. And he goes to Jesus and he says this in Mark 10, 17. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's going on here? He goes, good teacher. And I love that Jesus, before he can like move on, is like, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Listen, God alone is good. A couple of quick thoughts. We've talked about the communicable attributes of God versus the non-communicable. Don't let that kind of confuse you. There's attributes that God shares with us, and there's attributes to God and God alone. This is kind of one of those weird ones. We're like, God is good. So in some ways, we can experience goodness. Obviously, we can be good to an extent. It's a broken sense of goodness. But God alone is perfectly good. Jesus goes, why do you call me good? So the idea is, did this guy come to Jesus? Hey, I know you're good. You're, you're pretty good. Hey, good teacher. Like, you're a good teacher. People know you in that way. Or was this guy coming to Jesus saying, good teacher, with this mindset that he knows he's God, with this mindset that he knows he's not just like man. No rabbi was called a good rabbi because that, they knew that title of good was, was reserved for God and God alone. So I'd even go, good teacher, maybe he's aware that he's truly God. Maybe he's not. Some of us view Jesus as a good teacher, but do we view him as God? Some say, yeah, he's a good teacher to some extent, good teacher. But Jesus goes, no, no, I'm not, I'm not just a good teacher. That title is reserved for God and God alone. Is Jesus not claiming to be God? It's like, no, he's actually doing the opposite. He said, I hope you know what you're saying. I hope you know that you're acknowledging me as good, that which is only God. That's God and God alone. God alone is good. Now, I know we might know this, but do we really know this? Do we realize that there's no one good? Like, there's verses on this, right? Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23. There is none good, no, not gun. For all have sinned and fall the short of the glory of God. Like, we might know this. By nature, Ephesians talks about, by nature, we're children of wrath. All the parents, like, yes, I know that. My son or daughter was born as a child of wrath. Like, yes. But do we really know this? It's funny. There's my, I think about, like, my grandpa. My grandpa grew up in that, you know, he fought in World War II, that kind of era. And his mindset was, I'm a good person. I don't need God. I'm good. It's hard to convince someone. You're like, no, no, you're not. You're not as good as you think you are. You think about that's what basically the Old Testament up into the New Testament is trying to do that, saying, no, all have sinned. All have broken God's law. All have broken God's commandments. How could anyone claim to be good? And yet we still do. There's people I love dearly who have this mindset that people are born inherently good. I would say, no, people are born inherently evil. By nature, we're we're prone to sin. I get it that we can do good because we're still image bearers of God. We still can reflect the image of God. God is good. But that is a broken reflection of God because of sin. It's perverted our idea of good. It's perverted how we live out as good. I love how William Tyndale says this. He says, God's goodness is the root of all goodness and our goodness. If we have any springs out of his goodness, all goodness flows out of him. If we have any goodness, it's because of him. There is this mindset that God, you are good and you are, you're the alone good God. Only you are good. I, I know maybe not a lot of you need convincing on this, but there's something about realizing there comes a point in time you go, I am not good. And that is a freeing day when you realize I can't even be good if I wanted. I actually boast and rest in the goodness of God, that he is good. It's miserable when you pursue the goodness in a sense to get God's favor or to get God's love or to get God's approval. And you kind of go, I'm pursuing this thing. I want to be good. And I fall short over and over again. And it's a freeing day when you realize, come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Like, yes, obviously in light of God's goodness, we want to produce good works. We want to do good works. We'll we'll get to that. But I I can't pursue that for the sake of God loving me more or salvation. And it's an incredibly freeing moment and day when you realize, God, you alone are good. And I'm going to rest in your goodness, that you alone are good, God. 
Here's what I love what author William Charnick said about God. He says this. It's a longer quote, so bear with me, but it's really good. He says, pure and perfect goodness is only the royal prerogative of God. Goodness is a choice, perfection of the divine nature. This is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness. Good in himself, good in his essence, good in the highest degree, possessing whatsoever is comely, excellent, desirable, the highest good. Because first good, whatsoever is uh, a perfect goodness is God. Whatsoever is truly goodness in any creature is the resemblance of God. All the names of God are comprehended in this one of good. All gifts, all variety of an overflowing goodness of his nature. He refers all things to himself as the end for the representation of his own goodness. Truly, God is good. Only him, he's good. He's what we'd call like some bonum, the, the chiefest good, the ultimate good. God is the highest good that everything fails in, in comparison to his goodness. I love actually studying this this week and like realizing this. This is a cool thought to me. Uh, the original Saxon meaning of our English word for God is the word, the good. It's like the getting back to like the root of our word for God is actually like referring to the good. God is the good. He's it. He is the good. That is him. And he does good. God is good and he does good. It says this in Psalm 1868. He says, you are good and do good. You know that God is good and does good? Uh, in Genesis 1, seven times, it says when he basically created creation, like, and there's different things he created, different aspects of life, seven times you see this phrase, very good. It was very good, very good, very good. God is good, he does good. It's very good. It's what he does. He can't help but make good. It's who he is. I can't help but, like, make bad. I can't make anything, really. So, like, nothing I make is good, um, besides my children. Um, but I can't make good. I don't do that. My wife gets credit for that. But the idea is, like, God, whatever he does is good. Just whatever, it comes out of him. It flows goodness. He's just, he's good. Here's a couple thoughts on this. Um, do you know that God is good to everyone? You need to know this. God is good to all. You're like, no, not me. I'm the one person. Uh, no, God is good to all. Listen, Psalm uh, 145. The Lord is good to who? Come on, up here. The Lord is good to and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is good to all. I don't know if we have that perspective. Jesus actually was speaking of this in the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes this is called his outward works or his outward goodness. Sometimes it might be referred to as just common grace, the idea that grace falls on all of us in some capacity. But this, he is good to all. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He says, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you see what he's saying? He's actually saying, because, by the way, rain, sometimes as a kid, I thought that's like a bad thing. Like, it rains. No, rain was a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. You're, in a, you're like in a, in a culture and society that just depends on agriculture. Like, you need rain. And he's saying, the sun rises on evil and good people. It rains for evil and good people, the just and unjust. God is just good. There's this common good that God extends. You know, this is so beautiful, because you think, why does God offer forgiveness? Because I'm good? Because he's good. Like, why does God answer prayer? Does God answer prayer like when we're really good? God's like, ah, you hit the level of goodness. Now I'll answer your prayer. God answers prayer because what? He is good. See, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God, God is just good. It's such a freeing thought when you realize, wait, God, you are, you are just good. I, I, again, I can't earn this goodness, but you are just, you are good. It's so freeing when you realize he answers prayer, he forgives, he gives life, he gives joy, just because he is a good God. That's who he is. He is good to all. 
I think that we can slap that hand sometimes. I think we can bite the hand that feeds us. I think we can kind of be like, no, I, won't, I will not acknowledge. I'm the one person God's not good to. And it's hard. Sometimes we got to stop and go, man, what is the good in my life? Is there any good in my life? And when you stop and count it and you think through it, it's like, wow, all of those things, anything good is from God. If there's good, it's because of God. God is good to all. Next thought is, uh, God gives good gifts. I want you to say this, God gives good gifts. He just does. God can't help but give good gifts. We already quoted James 1. But there's this beautiful uh, story in Luke 11 where the disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus goes through the Lord's Prayer, essentially. Then he says, well, you have not because you ask not. He basically says, ask and it'll be given. You know, and he knock and it'll be opened. And here's what he says in Luke 11, 11. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, by the way, did you catch that? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He goes, fathers on earth know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will your father give good gifts, specifically the best gift, the Holy Spirit? I actually want us to think through this for a little bit. Um, I do want to talk about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we view that like, okay, to just have the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, to have the Spirit of God living in me, there must be some sort of level or quality of life I must live to get this. You know what I love? The same way we receive salvation by faith in Jesus, the same way we receive the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus. He says, ask, knock, it'll be open. Hey, if your fa- a father wants to give good, give good gifts to the children, your heavenly Father wants to give you the Holy Spirit. There's a side of it, just ask, receive, knock. He wants to give you the power from on high. He wants to give you the comforter who is with you. He wants to give you the Spirit. He want, he's a good Father who gives good gifts, specifically the Holy Spirit. But in the context of saying pray, remember the context is pray. You need to pray, ask. We serve a good, we got to realize the person we're praying to is not like, beg. He's good. It's like, I want to give you this. But ask. Sometimes you, as a parent, I get that. Like, I want my kid to ask. Like, you want that. You want to see that. He's a good Father who gives good gifts. So listen, God is good. That is just his person. He's good and upright. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes? But number two is the problem. Here's the problem, right? It's a classic argument. It's a classic problem presented to Christians for hundreds of years. Uh, Either God, he's not all good, or he's not all powerful. It it goes along the line something like that. How could an all-powerful and all-good God allow evil and suffering in this world? Because he can't be all good, or he can't be all powerful. And you'll hear this a lot today from like modern day thinkers, atheists, again, a Richard Dawkins type or Christopher Hitchens type. I mean, one of their, if you read anything about like the God's Illusion or some of their books that they write or put out there, a lot of it is a chapter two devoted on just basically evil and suffering and pain. And they're saying, this is why God does not exist. It's called like the problem of evil. And it's a problem. It's a tough question. It's tough to walk through. By no means, I think I'll answer all of that. But I do hope to point out a couple things. Can we turn to Romans chapter two? Romans chapter two. Just turn there. Paul kind of shows us another problem, a similar problem, actually. But it's in Romans chapter 2. Paul kind of walks us through an interesting thought. Romans, we're going to read verse 2 through 1 through 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Wow. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Let me put it another way, because I think this is actually a better word for this Greek word. It's like Christostos of goodness or riches. He says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Here's what Paul is like looking at in Romans. And he's, Paul is brilliant. If you know Romans, the first three chapters, Paul is trying to make this argument. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, you think you're good, you think you're he, wicked, doesn't matter. Everyone in some way is guilty before God. You are without excuse, he says. No one has an excuse. I didn't know. He's like, no one has an excuse. And we saw that in Romans chapter one. His divine attributes are clearly seen in creation. You are without excuse. No one has an excuse on the day of judgment. And he's saying, you, we judge others, yet we do the same things. But he brings up this interesting thought. He's like, don't you realize that the patience, the forbearance, the goodness of God was to lead you to repentance? That it's his goodness or kindness that leads us to repentance. I want us to see, he goes, hey, we get it. We're all guilty before God. There will come a day of judgment. But God is being patient. God is so good. God extends his hand and says, reach out. God's like, I'm reaching out to you. I love you. Receive the free gift of salvation. This goodness of God is supposed to go, wow, God, I can't believe that I turned my back. I rebelled. I've constantly pushed you away. And yet you're still pursuing me. You're still so good that you love me that much. Like he says, this goodness of God should lead us to repentance. This goodness and kindness of God should say, God, I'm done. I cannot believe after all the times I've rejected you and basically giving you the middle finger and try to walk away from you, you've still pursued me and love me. God, you're, you're so good. And it's supposed to draw us to repentance. Oneness is beautiful on so many levels because you think about we try to maybe guilt people into repentance that will never work. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. We should preach the goodness of God because that's when people go, wow, God, you're so good. You would love me? I'm not too far. I'm not too wicked. The things I've done, like, yes, I love you. Like, you're welcome. Come on in. It is that goodness of God that's to say, God, I'm done. I repent. Your goodness brings me to my knees. Your goodness. God obviously might use his justice or his holiness to bring us to his knees. But I think so often God desires to use his goodness to bring us to our knees or bring us to this place of repentance. God's like, I'm good. See, God is good in that way. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. There is that problem of evil. Like, I don't, I don't want to d- diminish that. They go, okay, how could a loving God, how could a, a good God allow cancer, rape, murder, suffering, hell? How can he be good and allow these things? And they bring up the problem of evil. Paul in Romans 2 is bringing up the problem of good find this really interesting. He's like, you also have a problem. If you don't believe in God, explain good. Explain good. If you follow the natural way of thinking, this is just what it is. Rape, suffering, murder, painful things. We shouldn't be upset by that. That shouldn't move us. That's just what life is. But we have the standard to go, we know that's not right. We know that doesn't fit. Paul's saying, we have a problem. It's hard. Listen, the question of evil is a hard question for us. But the question of good is a hard question for anyone who does not believe or accept in God. Explain good. Because God is good. Here's what I want to get to. There's kind of two classical arguments that Christians have tried to offer for this problem of suffering and evil uh, for a while now. There's two classical arguments. We'll put them up here. Two words, uh, theodicy, theodicy and inscrutability. These are kind of two ideas that we say, hey, like, consider this. Before you dismiss God and say, an all-good and all-powerful God would never do this, therefore God just doesn't exist. Before you kind of come to that conclusion, there's kind of a couple arguments saying, hey, would you consider th- these ideas? So let's look at the first one, uh, theodicy. It says, because, or God may very well have a good reason for allowing the evil he does allow. A reason compatible with his holy and good character. There's this idea of just, hey, just before you move on, there might be a reason God does allow things, that God does allow evil. That reason might be beyond us. So before you dismiss it, 
And I want to like, you have to break that down. It tries to offer reasons for that. The next one is inscrutability. Here's the idea. It's the fact that we may not be able to, to discern or correctly guess at God's justifying reason for allowing evil is no good reason to think he doesn't have a reason. We probably wouldn't understand anyways. So let me kind of talk about this way. There's thoughts that's been proposed like, God, if, you, if, if he was good, he'd just wipe out all evil, all forms of evil. Think about that. Carry that thought to its end. If he were to wipe out all forms of evil, guess who he'd wipe out? Me. You. Evil's, it's, a, it's in us. We go, but, uh, no, but not that kind of evil. Like, I mean, the really bad stuff. And, and we go, like, okay, to what degree? You wipe out, you know. The point is, God in his goodness has not done that yet. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of justice. And I think that that's why we, we did God is just in the past, just to focus on this heart cry and desire for justice, because that is a very beautiful God-given desire for justice. But you have to see that God in his goodness doesn't wipe us out. God in his goodness doesn't take me out right away, right now. God in his goodness doesn't take you out right now. There's a side of it like, well, if he's so good, just wipe out evil. We'd all be like, poof, gone. <laughs> Nothing would be here. There, there's some reasons that, obviously, I don't, know if he, he even, I don't know if it'd help. Let's be honest. When there's evil and suffering, you don't try to use, like, can I talk to you about these inscrutability? No, no one does that. You don't do that. If someone's suffering, you, you weep with them. You grieve with them. You suffer with them. There might be a time and place to bring up these conversations way probably down the line. Way, way, way down the line. In, in reality, when you think about suffering and grieving and someone trying to understand this in a way, you just go, I'm sorry. Sin is evil. Look what, look what it's brought us to. You, you see that this is never God's original desire or heart for mankind. God's will was that none should perish. God's will from the very beginning was just to know him and walk with him and love him and be in paradise with him. This is God. Our rebellion, our choice, our desire led us down this path. And there's a side where you guys say, you understand Jesus enters into that suffering and into that brokenness and into that pain with us. The only way to try to answer questions on suffering, evil, hell is by looking at the cross. Like, there's no way to talk about this without looking at the cross. Like, try to answer these questions through the lens of the cross. You just go, yeah, because Jesus took on suffering and evil. Jesus took on hell. Jesus, you, you can't not answer these questions without looking through the lens of the cross. We have to look at these questions just through Jesus suffering with us because of sin, for us. It has to be through this lens. I mean, but there are ways to just kind of, I guess, dissect this, and I don't know if it's going to be helpful or not, but here's just one thought. Um, here's a, a way I want to kind of define it. The way of inscrutability shows that it is entirely uh, to be expected that creatures like us can't come up with God's reasons given who God is and who we are. Another way to put it is, there is no proof that God does not have good reasons for allowing evil, but because he's good, we can only assume that he does. So if we had to summarize, because people go, he's either not all good or he's not all powerful. So he, he just can't exist. If we kind of had to summarize our argument, not that this will be um, the, the knockout punch, but hopefully helpful, here's kind of the way we break it down, one, two, three. Here's the first thought we have to share. God aims at great goods, either for mankind or for himself or both. Know this about God. He aims at just great goods. God often intends these great goods to come about by way of various evils. He will use these and redeem these in different ways. Number three, God leaves created persons in the dark, in the dark about which goods are indeed his reasons for the evils or about how the good depends on the evils. This is classically displayed through the story of Job. I'm going to try to wait, not talk about that, because I want to probably use that next week for God is sovereign. Uh, but this is incredibly helpful for us. to say, you know what? God, there are some things I'm going to be limited in. I can't assume to know, if you were to explain the reason why you're allowing this, that would make, it makes sense. Because I don't get how this, the decisions I make affect some part of the country or world. I don't get that. But you, you see how it plays together. Is this God's uh, perfect will for us, the sin and corruption that we see? No. 
Like what we see is not God's perfect will. It's his permissive will. I think it's incredibly helpful that we as Christians try to discern the difference between his perfect will and permissive will. Obviously, if you and I were at coffee and we're talking and you said something offensive and I just punch you in the face and I'm like, that's God's will for you. No, that's not God's perfect will, right? That'd be like God's permissive will. Like he allowed me, he didn't stop my fist from moving. The point being that there is a perfect will of God and there's a permissive will of God. And we have to see that God's perfect will is not what we're currently seeing right now. That's his permissive will. But we will see God's perfect will one day. We'll see it established. Uh, another way I want to look at this, I love what Randy Alcorn said about this. Just hear me out. He wrote a book, um, basically, If God is Good. And here's what he says. He says, you cannot get, oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. He says, if we come to see the purpose of the universe as God's long-term glory rather than our short-term happiness, then we will undergo a critical paradigm shift in tackling the problem of evil and suffering. The world has gone terribly wrong. God is going to fix it. First, for his eternal glory. Second, for our eternal good. We have to see past the short term. He goes, that's the problem for when it comes to suffering and evil. We don't see past the short term. We have to see the long term, which we, again, probably wouldn't get anyways. But we have to see it from a different vantage point. We have to see what God is trying to do perfectly when it comes to heaven and eternity and what he's working out. We have to see the long term. You know, um, there's a guy named Philip Yancey. He, he wrote, What God is Good. And he basically tries to answer the questions from Hitchens and Dawkins and saying, God cannot be all good and all powerful. And I love what he says. And just, just hear this out. And again, it's a longer thing, but here's his response. Philip Yancey, pastor, author, <laughs> he says, In my interviews with addicts and prostitutes, I heard several dozen wrenching accounts of the power of evil to control and destroy lives and the power of God to overcome that evil. I wish skeptics like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins had the same chance to hear the stories of transformation from social outcasts who hit the very bottom and now credit God for the strong grace that saved them in the most literal sense. What good is God? He rescued me from sex, slavery, and drug addiction. God brought me back to life. No doubt the skeptics would have a different psychosocial explanation for life changes, but hearing a dozen such stories in an afternoon tend to overwhelm rational argument. Jesus himself rarely offered theological proofs. He simply went around transforming lives. This is what you see about our God. I don't know if a philosophical explanation would satisfy the, the, the suffering that's in our soul, that's in the world. We know that Jesus goes around and says, let me, let me transform that. And he did that with people, whether physical suffering or really the most important, the eternal suffering. Let, let me go and fix that issue. Let me transform that. Let me suffer with you. Let me suffer alongside of you. That I look at how Alcorn says is Jesus, the only answer bigger than the questions. The questions are big, but the answer is bigger. He's going, Jesus, the only answer to the big questions. Because these are big questions. We don't, we don't want to diminish them. We don't want to downplay them. We don't be like, ah, oh, it'll make sense one day. We don't want to downplay it. We want to grieve and weep and say, Jesus seeks to transform. Jesus seeks to enter into that pain with you. Yes, there's a problem of evil and suffering. There's also a problem of goodness. And we think about hell and you go, how could a good God ever send someone to hell? You go, how could a holy God ever send someone to heaven? How could a good God, God, ha, there has to be a hell for God. Like, if God is good, there has to be a hell. If there's no hell, how could God be good? He must punish sin. Like, that's a good quality of God. That he cannot overlook it. Imagine a judge, again, or someone who just overlooks sin constantly. You'd be like, you are not a good person. There has to be, like, retribution. There has to be something going on here. And so he's a good God. And I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He goes, a, a God who's infinitely good and infinitely love, there must be the opposite of that. There must be infinite pain and infinite misery. To reject this infinitely good God, you're going to get the opposite. If you reject a God who's infinitely love and infinitely good, okay, you will get the opposite of that. Not infinitely good, but infinite, infinite, infinite suffering. 
See, again, hell was not created for us. It was created for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25. Jesus, is, this, this is not my intent and desire for you. That's why I've come to rescue and redeem. That's why Jesus came and gave his body, saying, if you're going to end up in hell, it is truly over my dead body you end up in hell. Because that is not the heart of God for us. God's heart is that we would be with him. We love him. This problem of evil and suffering can only be answered through, through looking at it through the lens of the cross. And there's a side of it where you just go, okay, there's some surrender to it. There's a problem of evil, but there's a problem of good. How is there any good in this world? The only way we can answer that is God. I would never know a line was crooked unless I saw a straight line. That's the only way. You have to see the straight line to realize there's crooked lines. So we look at, the, yes, there's a problem of evil, but there is, a, there is a problem of good as well. So here's this brings us to number three. We see the person, God is good, the problem. And hopefully the, it only makes sense through Jesus and the cross. And number three, we see uh, the promise. And here's a couple promises in scripture. And I just want this to sink in and like literally just turn our hearts to worship now. But here's what it says in Psalm 31. He says, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. How abundant is your goodness. There is so much goodness stored up for those who fear God. If you fear God, man, he has uh, an abundance of goodness ready to give to you. Here's another one. It's probably the most well-known Psalm, Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. I shall not want. And he walks through how God is a shepherd. And here's how he ends the Psalm. Psalm 23, verse six. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to hear this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Um, I love what Spurgeon talks about. He talks about like these being the hounds of heaven. Here, here's this idea. When you have a dog and the dog follows you around, imagine you have two dogs in heaven that just follow you around. One dog is named goodness, one dog is named mercy. And you're just going around heaven like goodness and mercy, but it's not this. He goes, here, now in life, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. Do you believe this? God is good. God, God is good to all. God has an abundance of mercy to those who fear him. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you and me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, the goodness of God will follow you all the days of your life. This is something, and when he says surely, it's like, of course it will. Of course God's mercy and goodness will follow you. Of course it will. It's just God is good. His goodness will follow you. Is it goodness the way I think it should be good? Probably not. My, the way I view good and the way God views good, Mine is very limited. God is very whole and complete. I have a shallow view of good. God has a deep view of good. That he will work this together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God's like, I will do that. I will work this together for good. Think about that word good. I just had so much fun like looking and searching the word good just everywhere in the scripture. God's like, I want to work this together for good. Goodness and mercy will follow you. It's going to happen. God has an abundance of mercy to those who fear him. And so here's how David ends. Psalm 107, he says, Here's how I want to end. He says, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness. Can we do that? I want to end by praising the Lord for his goodness to men. The fact that we can still experience good, the fact that a non-believer can have a, 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 the birth of a child, see the baby, hold the baby, smell the baby, and not believe in God, but still experience goodness, is because we just serve a good God. The fact that any of us get any sense of goodness is because God is good. Oh, that we just praise him because he's good. His goodness is why we are spared. His goodness is why we are saved. His goodness is why we're going to heaven. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
can we just praise him for his goodness now? Can we end that way? Yes? Why don't you bow your head, close your eyes for a second, just say, thank you, Jesus. We're going to end with some worship, but you just take a second and say, God, I just want to praise you. I want to thank you. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me because you are good. You are upright. I want to taste and see right now the Lord is good. I have, and I want to continue to, to experience that you are good. Truly the Lord is good, Psalm 73. He, that's just who he is. Father, we just want to thank you and say, God, you are good. You are good. That is your nature. That is who you are, that you are upright. God, that you are kind, that you are a kind God, that it's your kindness, your goodness that leads us to repentance. Jesus, I ask that all of us in this place, we all have something to repent of because there's constantly things taking your place in our lives. So God, we repent. We say, God, you're so good. We don't want anything to take your place. Nothing is good like you. You alone are good. So God, we ask that you would just take your rightful place in our lives that we could honor you, praise you for your goodness, sing to you, because God, you are good. We thank you so much, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Hey, why don't you guys just stand? Let's just close out with some worship.